All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. Great to see you and have you here this morning. Um, obviously, uh, the Christmas season has begun. Um, I have a keen sense for the obvious, okay? Uh, so we're grateful uh, Don and the team got all this together, and I think it looks absolutely amazing. So, all right. Amen. <clears throat> Yeah, so a couple of people, I, I was out there as they were walking by the doors and people were like, took a double take and were looking in and uh, ooing and aahing at uh, how beautiful things look. So we're grateful for that. Um, a couple of things coming up this month, obviously this being our season of celebrating the birth of Christ and the hope that all of that brings for us. Uh, we have a couple special events. One is on December 18th. We have a children's choir that will be singing that Sunday. So uh, be sure that they're involved in the practices and then able to participate in the presentation that Sunday. Uh, our Christmas Eve service will be at 5 o'clock. I think all this is on that sheet that's uh, beside you on a chair. Uh, and then Christmas Day, the day of Christ's birth, when we celebrate that, we will be meeting here for a service that morning at 1030. So I want you to be uh, aware of that as well. Five o'clock. Did I say 530? Oh, Dave is wrong. I, Dave's wrong and I'm right. No, it is five o'clock. Okay, five o'clock. Yeah. Okay, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day is 10:30, okay? All right. So one of my favorite verses uh related to the Christmas celebration and uh what it is that we really are putting the emphasis on is found in Galatians chapter 4. And it says when the right time or season had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law. God sent him to purchase freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he, God, could give us adoption as sons. And that is to say we become the children of God. And that is the beauty of what this celebration in this month is about. And the result is that we cry to God, Papa or Father. That we, because of the work of Christ, come into relationship with God in a way that we never could have because of our sin, but through the work of Christ, our sin is born away, and we are invited into a beautiful and powerful relationship with God himself. So I pray that the outcome of this season, our saving, our relationship with God would today and through this season become very precious to us. I want you to join me in prayer. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray together? Our Father, we are thankful that we can come as sons and daughters with all of our needs. Uh, to a Father who loves us, to a Father who has included us in his plans. Lord, our future is secure. And in our need, even in this hour, in this day, we can cry out to you, Abba, Father. And Lord, we do that this morning on behalf of our very dear friend, Diana Kelly, as she uh, prepares this week to have scans done and get new results and just praying fervently, God, uh, that you would uh, 
I think her request was that you would, in, at the least, uh, show that the uh, growth of tumors has been stopped and that even more, perhaps, would be gone. And we join her in that prayer, hopefully, through Christ this morning. Uh, we lift up our uh, missionary friend, Joey Sodza, and his family as they uh, work with the uh, college students uh, in New Jersey. We pray, uh, God, that you would continue to open doors and that you would draw young people to come to know you as Savior and King of their lives. We pray, Lord, this morning that as we sing songs that celebrate this season, that you, God, would open our eyes uh, to see, I think we'll sing this morning, to see what God has done in our redeeming and saving. Lord, forgive us for getting past that truth. And Lord, this morning, help us to get back to that truth, that my position with a loving, perfect, holy, heavenly Father is owing only to the fact that at the right time, God sent forth his Son. Thank you, Lord, that through your work on the cross, you have delivered us from all religion, and you have brought us into relationship. We want to celebrate that for the glory of Christ this morning. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us as we sing together in your glorious name. And we pray these blessings in the beautiful name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's worship him together. Power to save, but your name. 
Prince of Peace. Okay, here we go. Join the world. 
Wilson from the Squalor. From the squalor of a borrowed stable, by the spirit and the virgin's faith, to the anguish and the shame of scandal, came the Savior of the human race. But the skies were filled with the praise of hell, shepherds listen as the Yeah. 
for that day when you return to the skies and to redeem us all.
We know you hear the praises of your people. You know, we sing things like, what a, what a beautiful name, what a powerful name, what a wonderful name. And Jesus, we believe that, Lord. You are powerful. You're wonderful. You're beautiful. All these things are true, God. We thank you that we can celebrate the plan in action at Christmas time. It's the greatest tradition of Christmas time. It's the remembering of God's plan being put in motion. This ridiculous plan doesn't make any sense. Why would God come down as a baby in this town of Bethlehem? Why wouldn't he be seated on the throne of the world? But Lord, you didn't come to conquer the planet. You came to conquer our sin. You lived a simple life, a humble life. You didn't have legions of armies at your disposal, Lord. You had 12 disciples and, of course, a lot of followers, too. But it was simple. It was humble. And it wasn't, how can we topple the Roman government? How can I lead our armies across the world, Lord? It was, how can I teach you? How can I teach you that there's a different way to live? And then more importantly, how can I show you? How can I show you to live? How can I show you to sacrifice yourselves? for something greater. And Lord, that's what you did. Literally sacrificing yourself, the Father turns his face away. You become the sacrifice for us all. And so we can sing boldly and proudly, what a beautiful name. What a powerful name. Thank you, Lord, we can sing this morning of these things, God. We, we ask you to help us to continue to worship you 
as we hear your word through Pastor Doug this morning, God. Thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Don't you love the Christmas season? It's such a wonderful time to think about the glories of the incarnation. And thank you, worship team, again for leading us to this great truth. Oh, yes, uh, children five to eight years of age, if you can be dismissed at this time for junior church. Thank you, Scott, for the reminder there. As many times as I do this, how many times do I forget that, you know? Tim, you don't seem to forget that much. You do. I don't know. I don't know. Well, if you have your Bibles, ask you to turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 15 to 29 in our time together this morning. Just so you know, we'll be continuing with Ecclesiastes next week for Sunday, and then we're going to take kind of a three-week hiatus, not from church, okay, but just that the message is then on the 18th, the 25th, and the 1st of January will be focused more around uh, the Christmas or New Year's theme. So, and then we'll come back and finish up in Ecclesiastes uh, in January and early February. So that's kind of the plan, just so you know where we're going there. In 1947, a young New Yorker by the name of Glenn Chambers was set to minister with the voice of, Ant, of the Andes in uh, Quito, Ecuador. He's really excited. And on the day of his departure, I, he took off from New York and came down in Miami. And he had forgotten. He had an envelope and a stamp, but apparently he didn't have a card for his mom. And he was in a rush to get onto the plane to head to Ecuador. And he, he just saw a newspaper scrap on the terminal floor, and he thought that would be sufficient. So he picked it up, and, and he wrote a quick note to his mom and stuffed it in an envelope, mailed it, you know, put it, whoever you give it to, to mail it to at the airport, whatever. He did, and he was off. But he never made it to Quito, Ecuador. That plane ended up, for whatever reason, it was cloudy, something happened over Columbia or whatever, and the pilot was too low, and they ran right into a 14,000-foot mountain, El Tablazo, I think it is, and they all died. And his mom, as you can imagine, was completely heartbroken over that. But to kind of add Tad insult to injury, when she actually opened up the envelope, he had written the note um, on an advertisement, and in bold print in the middle, it just had these words, why? Do you have situations like that in your life? Well, you go, Lord, that doesn't make any sense. I have no answers. I mean, I thought it, it's supposed to be like this rather than like that, and the whole world seems upside down. If you've ever had those kinds of feelings, you're in good company. Because when we come and read this passage in Ecclesiastes 7, the writer, preacher, the preacher as he calls himself, uh, probably Solomon, is having similar kinds of struggles. So I want you to notice 
as we work through this passage. He's going he's to raise these issues twice, and they're very similar. But he's going to say, I have a major problem with this. And then he's going to tell us how both not to respond and how to respond to it. Okay? So I want to work through those two phases and then try to draw it all together a little bit for you at the end. But in many ways, you know this. You find with Solomon, there's times when he speaks and you're going like, man, he's speaking just like a pagan on the street at times, isn't he? There's other times you see wisdom coming in and, and this delight as he kind of gives us kind of God's perspective and he moves back and forth between those. This particular text, he's much more inserting a good perspective on all this. But, but I have to tell you one other thing is reading through this. Um, one of the things I find as we're working through the Ecclesiastes series, there's a lot of really tough verses in Ecclesiastes. I mean, I don't know if you found it, but we sure find it as the guys that are preaching this stuff. And you get to these verses, you go like, what in the world is that all about? So I'm gonna try to give you my take on all those things. I have opinions on it, but um, for some of it, it's a little bit challenging, okay? But here's the problem, 7.15. Listen to what Solomon says. And his problem around this whole why question, trying to, trying to figure it out, he, he'll come to that both by saying, this is what I've seen, and that'll be the first movement of this passage, and then later, this is what I try to do to try to bring it all together, and, and it doesn't work. So he has to come back to simple faith. So listen to what he says, verse 15. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these things. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Now that's a tough one. Think about it. You flip back a couple books to the book of Proverbs and you're gonna read Proverbs like this. Let me just read a couple of them to you. Proverbs 11.21 says this. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendants of the righteous will be delivered. Or, or Proverbs 12, 21. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. And you read that and you go like, amen. Don't you? Like, isn't that the way it's supposed to work in God's world? We have to be very, very careful with the book of Proverbs that we don't turn general principles into promises. Because then you will become completely discouraged when it doesn't quite work out that way. It's, it's the Asaph syndrome, isn't it, in Psalm 73, where he's going like, uh, I theologically what I know is that God is good to Israel and to those who are righteous. But it's not making any sense in my life. In my life, everything's spiraling downward, and that wicked guy over there, his life is spiraling upward. It's the Asaph syndrome. And so 
So, so in Ecclesiastes and in, in the Psalms, in, in Job, like you don't get a more righteous guy than that. Think about it. God says, not, not just any, Job's not saying it merely about himself. God himself says to Satan, did you see Job? He's righteous. I mean, that's a pretty good thing. When God makes the statement, well, how's his life go? Doesn't it? Do you see? One of the great challenges, and Solomon's looking around, he's saying, look, I wrote some of these proverbs. I gave you the general principle. Live righteous, God will bless. Wicked, God will judge. And it seems like it's the flip-flop. It seems like the wicked go on and the righteous die early. So what do you do with that? How do you put it together? Solomon tells us there's some wrong responses to this before he gives us the right response. Look at the wrong responses that you find here in verses 16 and 17. The wrong responses are this. Let me say it simply and then explain it because sometimes I think like they may not understand what that means. Seeking to manipulate God or to presume upon him. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 16. And this is one of those verses when you read it on the surface, you go like, what is going on here? Listen, here it is. Do not be overly righteous. Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Now, let, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying like, okay, um, you're kind of living life here in the middle. You know, you're not real committed to, to the Lord and you're not as bad as your neighbor. So, yeah, just kind of steer that thing in the middle. Don't get too righteous and don't get too wicked. That'll work for life. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Here's what I think he's saying. What happens when he says here, don't be over-righteous or over-wise? What if what happens is my life is not doing well? Things are going wrong. And I'm saying, you know what? You know what? I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to be more righteous and more wise, and therefore I will manipulate and force God's hand so that he's got to do good things to good people. And what happens is you could slip into a stance of self-righteousness that says God is obligated to me to do what I want him to do, how I want him to do it. And in that sense, he's not saying, uh, don't be really righteous. He's saying, don't be falsely righteous. Don't be self-righteous. Stay the course of seeking to walk in a way that's honorable to God, but don't try to manipulate God. It's easy to do that sometimes, isn't it? I'll try harder and God will change my circumstances. Now, it's true. There's times when God is disciplining us because of the way we're living. I completely get that. 
But there's other times as we are walking with God, he allows things into our lives and we cannot figure it out. And it's not about trying harder. It's about resting more in him. So on the one hand, he says, as you're going through life and you see all these kind of reversals, the answer isn't to try to play like one of Job's friends who says very simply, look, there's only two options. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. So I just got to be gooder. I know that's not a word. I got to just be gooder, gooder, gooder. And then God will be gooder to me or something like that. It doesn't work that way. And Solomon says, don't become self-righteous like I will force the hand of God. Because you know what will happen? You'll destroy yourself. That, that word in the Hebrew for destroy sometimes means things literally that I destroy. But David will sometimes use it to describe in the Psalms the affliction in my heart that I'm experiencing. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if it's all about my performance and I'll just do more and I'll force the hand of God, what happens when it doesn't work out? I will turn inward and begin asking questions like, why even be a Christian? This whole thing doesn't make any sense. What's wrong with God? And on and on and on. And you see what I'm doing in my soul? And I am, I am destroying myself because of what I'm expecting from God. So he says, don't be, don't be self-righteous. Don't, be, don't just say, I'm going to perform and force God's hand. No, 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 no. On the other hand, verse 17, do not be over-wicked and do not become a fool. Why die before your time? You know the tendency? You can look at a world that's upside down. Good people die early. Believers in Jesus Christ in Nigeria or Nepal or Indonesia. Godly men and women are, are, are massacred because of their Christian faith. And the wicked people that do it, they don't even go, they don't even face a trial. And in our minds, we're going, it's not right. And in the mystery of God, he allows things that we don't always fully understand. But he says, the response when you see that happening is not, I'll just be better and force his hand. Neither is the response, well, then I guess I can do whatever I want and God won't care. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because a sovereign God, at the time he appoints, can end your life. And don't you know that often it's the goodness of God which should be leading people to repentance, as Paul says in Romans 2? And there are people that will take the patience of God as an excuse to manipulate God and to do whatever they want. So Solomon says in a world that's upside down, it's not about manipulating him. It's not about living any way I want. Well then, what should we do? What's the right response? The appropriate response we can see there in verses 18 to 22. 
walking humbly by wisely submitting to God and honestly recognizing our own sinfulness. Listen to what he says. I, I, I think what he does in this passage, and th this is one of those passages, I just, I, I had to sit with this passage for hours for it to really make sense. And, and, and I pray, <laughs> pray this is what's happening because I think this is what he's doing. I think in verse 18, he's giving kind of a summary statement. In verses 19 to 22, he's going to then go back and unpack that summary statement. First is summary statement in verse 18. <clears throat> it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. You know what I think he's saying? Some people in a world that's like this, on the one hand, they're almost gonna deny that they're even a sinner by trying harder and harder and harder to manipulate God. Don't go there, don't go there. Because you are a sinner. You do fail. And you repent. I mean, it's the life of a believer. We're repenting all the time. So don't go there. On the other hand, other people are saying like, well, then I can just live any way I want. No, 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 don't go there either. Rather, keep intention. A world lived in, a wor in your world, what it means to humbly walk before God, not trying to manipulate him with the way I'm living, growing, not manipulating, and recognizing that I am merely a sinner saved by grace. You see, it's this, it's this balance and then he's going to go back and revisit it in some more detail in verses 19 to 20 by talking about it is important that you walk in wisdom. And it's also important to recognize that you're a sinner. It's hard to balance those sometimes, isn't it? Because God does a good work in your life and you're growing and you're rejoicing over that. But you can get a little bit cocky sometimes, can't you? Oh, hey, that was pretty good. Wow, I, whoa, you see what I did? Or whatever. And passages like this continually remind us that we are nothing but trophies of his grace. So he says, walk in wisdom, recognize your own sinfulness in a world that you cannot fully figure out. Look what he says in verse 19, walk in wisdom. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. Isn't that good? Choose 10 political figures. Don't give me their names out loud. <laughs> and God says, you know, there is a strength that comes to God's people, humble people walking with him, who live in wisdom. A strength that has a greater value and greater impact than the perspective and advice of 10 politicians. I like that. It, it's not a statement to be cocky. That's not the point. It's just saying as you're walking with God, he uses you in ways that you can't possibly imagine. We were... Uh, Sunday school today, and I won't mention any names. I had a very, very nice Sunday school. If you've not been to Sunday school, please come out and join us. We'd love to have you. But, but that's aside. But just sharing some stories of how 
because of the way Christians lived before us, for some in the class, it was exactly what God used to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. It's great. I mean, it's, just, it's what he does, right? Because there's a strength in wise living where God is at work and people are impacted and I don't care what the next political plan is, it's not gonna cut mustard because it's not dealing with what's most important, which is the heart. I'll stop there. Switching gears, he talks about humbly walking in wisdom because of this deep sense of our own sinfulness. Look at what he says in verse 20. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. You will never bat a thousand in the way you live. Do you know that? Sanctification by the power of the Spirit is all about improving your batting average. But you're not going to bat a thousand. And there's this deep sense when I live my life, I live life as a redeemed and forgiven son of God who still struggles with sin. Which impacts how I treat you. Look what he says in verse 21. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. <laughs> oh man, Solomon, he is just honest in what he says. Did you ever do that with folks? Somebody comes up and can you believe what he said about me? Only to think for a moment, how many times have I said that about somebody else? You see what he's doing? Yeah, the world doesn't make sense. The good die early. The wicked live forever. Well, they don't live forever, but it seems like they do, you know? And it's like, it's the whole thing. So, so I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be, wait, no, 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 no. Humbly grow and walk with God. God will use you. But don't get cocky. Well, that was, no. Because you are a sinner too. And it will change the way you treat others. Don't you love that passage in Matthew 7? Where Jesus is talking. And he says, um, look. If you're going to judge somebody else. And, and he doesn't say Christians shouldn't evaluate others. That's not the point there. What he says is, before I evaluate you, I better be evaluating myself. And don't tell me there's no, there's no humor in Scripture. I mean, can you imagine if I walked in here? To, I couldn't even get in here barely. But if there's like this huge two-by-four sticking out of my eye. Can you imagine that? You know? I'm like, I can't even turn my head. I'm going to whack you. You know? So I have to talk to you like this or something. And here it is. And I'm saying like, Man, can you, Willie, Willie, is that a splinter I see in your, Willie's got a splinter in, Willie, let's pray for Willie. And I got a two by four sticking out of my eye. You got, yeah, that's funny, fake fighter. I know, but it's me, it's us. When I deal with that two by four, 
Guess how that changes the way I treat Willie? Doesn't it? I don't go up to him and say, I can't believe you, Willie. No, I, I move toward Willie, not saying sin's okay, because I felt the guilt and the pain of my own. But saying, I've also found his release, Willie, and you can know the same. How can I help you? Do you see the difference? Looking at the world and just becoming bitter and oh, it's an option, people do it. Or humbly walking with God out of a deep sense my own struggle, knowing God's grace and sharing it with others. Now that's the way to live. So in this first movement, he talks about what he sees in an upside down world and, and our tendency to go either this direction or that direction. In the second movement, again, he has a problem, and I, what I appreciate about Solomon is he sees these inequalities, okay, he did that in the first section. In this second section, he's still trying to figure it out, though. Then I look at my own life. And I, I, I get to this time in my life where I go like, okay, Finkbeiner, just walk with God. There's mystery, leave it with him, okay? Just like walk with him. And then I drift back into saying, you know, I think I might be able to put this whole thing together, maybe. I wonder if, don't we do the same thing? Look at what he says here in verse 23. All this I tested by wisdom and I said, I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever existed is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Man, I am trying to put this thing together. Trying to figure it all out. And every time I do, uh, I come up short. I just can't put it together. So what do you do, Solomon, in this situation? Look what he says in verses 25 to 27. His first response that we should have. So, I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things. And I think what he's saying is, I'm on this journey, and on this journey, I'm saying, God, I'm trying to figure out the big picture, which is a big mistake. But I'm also just trying to figure out life itself, which is not a bad thing. There's part of that that's good, and then there's part of that is, that is beyond us. So I turn my attention to investigate and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. So I'm trying to get the big picture and I'm trying to understand just the nature of how destructive sin is. Okay, okay. And this is what I found, verse 26. All the way through this section is the word find. You find it again and again. I, I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains the man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now you're saying like, who is this woman? Scholars argue three possibilities, all right? <laughs> Some argue 
that it's the wife some guys marry. Like, boy, man, did I ever make a mistake? Blah, 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 blah. And you know, you got those passages in, in Proverbs that says, you know, a woman that's always, always, always nagging you is just like that slow drip that just doesn't, you, you know those passages, right? So some, I, I don't think that's right. I'm just saying some people have gone there. I often wonder sometimes when scholars come up with those positions what their marriages are like, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't ask. Okay. I didn't check. The second position, and you do find this in the book of Proverbs, you find both the second and third position. Um, some people argue that it's a, it's a loose woman could be an adulteress or whatever. A woman who's trying to allure a man away from his marriage and or with a young man trying to pull him into something that's premarital sex, something like that. And that's completely viable. That's Proverbs 2, that's Proverbs 5, that's Proverbs 7. So that's very possible. And honestly, early on when I was working with this, that's where I was leaning but I'm leaning a little bit of a different direction now for what it's worth. That's a very viable position. The third position is that it's a personification of foolishness. Because in Proverbs chapter nine, you have a comparison between lady wisdom and what sometimes is called dame folly. And folly is actually portrayed as a woman who's out there going like, as young men and people are going by, hey, come on in here. My food, yeah, it's stolen, whatever, but man, is it tasty. You'll love it. Of course, it'll destroy you at the end of the day, but come on, come on. So it could be an actual woman. It could be foolishness personified. And I think it's actually foolishness personified in this passage. I think what Solomon is saying is, you know, the light world doesn't always make sense. I'm trying to make sense of it. I'm trying to get the big picture and all the way through here, he never gets it. If you're, if you're trying to figure out what only God knows, forget it. But in the process of seeking to be wise, I have found that there's a way to live the foolish way which God wants to preserve us all from. And it's what he can do, what he can certainly do in our hearts. And when he does that work, it's his work and it shows that we love him. So, so I, I think that's what he's getting at here. He's saying, look, I'm trying to get the big picture, but in looking for this, I clearly saw this. And you know what? Here's something you can do. Not, not on your own ever, but by God's grace. You can grow in your wisdom living. You do not have to become, and look at the imagery that's used for foolishness. It binds me, it confines me. It doesn't sin do that. You think of things you struggle with. You just feel, you feel completely bound up. You feel like you're in a spider's net. Uh, uh, web or something and just it's sticky and it I can't break loose and Solomon says one of the things I have found is God doesn't want that for us God wants us to know the way of wisdom now we can't know everything but we can know him and we can take that next step but, but it's not going to be easy because he goes on to say this 
there um, in verses um, 28 and 29. Remember that while comprehensive understanding of everything is impossible. Even humble wisdom living is challenging because humanity is pervasively rebellious. What he says in verse 28. While I was still searching but not finding, see the big picture, I couldn't put that one together, right? I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. You go, oh boy. Misogynist here. And I think all it is is a rhetorical device that's saying, you have a hard time finding righteous, wise people. Period. If I say, if I look at you and I say, I don't know, I'm coming along. Uh, Tim, I'm going to pick on Tim here. Hi, Tim. Tim's, Tim's a good man, good friend. If I tell Tim, Tim, you're one in a million. What am I saying? I'm not saying there's not anybody else that's like Tim in, in, in whatever area, his skills or, or his way he walks or whatever, whatever the case may be. No, what I'm, what I'm saying is it's unusual. It's not easy. You're one in a million. And I think that's all the writer is saying here. When I go around, I look at all these people, man, you can't, it's really, you're hard pressed to find people that live like this. He says, and, and Solomon is just saying, look, I'm just telling you what I saw. You know, I've gone through all these people and say, man, I, I, I'm, I'm finding just one, for goodness sakes, between both genders. And it's not just what I'm finding, it's what the Bible actually says, Solomon would say. Look what he says in verse 29, where you get the big picture going back to Genesis. Verse 29, this only have I found. God created mankind upright, but they have gone in search of many schemes. He says, it's not just what I've seen when I look around, this pervasiveness of people who just, their theme song is, I'll have it my way. I know that from divine revelation because God made Adam and Eve without any sin. And with the fall of Genesis chapter three, it just launched all of humanity into a, a lifestyle of sinfulness against God. So therefore Solomon says, it's tough to watch people kind of buck that system. If you tell me, Finkbeiner, just do what comes naturally, that is not a good thing because that's what I'll do. I'm a chip off the old block. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what Finkbinder does too. I'm a chip off the old block. That's all it is. And so he pulls us back and he brings all these dynamics together. And he still ends with this in his heart. He's still trying to put the big picture together. He, will, he never did. And you never will. You know what's much better? Knowing the one who has and does. So let me end just by saying this. What might be our takeaway? Here it is rather simply. One who humbly walks with God 
does at least three things. Number one, he or she accepts that we cannot know or control all things. Solomon said, I'm trying, but you can't. There are things in your life, there may be some things in your life that have caused you to become embittered against God. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. It happens far too often. And you are so fixated on that that until God explains that to you, you cannot move on with life. You know what I would tell you? If you question God's love, and we all do at times, all you need to do is turn around, and we have been singing all about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And looming larger than life itself is the greatest statement of all that God is for me. He is for me in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He has come and lived a life I could never live and died a death I deserve to die. He loves me. And this God, who is at times is mysterious, I can never question his love when I turn back because that's what I see. But sometimes in my present, it gets awful fuzzy and cloudy. Solomon is saying, you're not gonna be able to put all that together. I, I, I've shared this with you before. Um, and, and I don't know the answer to this day. You know, why at the age of 44 did God allow my sister to contract a terrible form of cancer that from the time we knew what it was till the time she passed away was six weeks. Godly, wonderful, wonderful woman. I don't know. I don't, to this day, I don't know. If God would have checked with me beforehand, I could have given him a whole list of people that would have been much better knocking off. <laughs> you say, that's awful. You're a pastor. I, I know, I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you, okay? Do you know what I know? I know that God is for me in Jesus Christ. That's what I know. I don't know this one. I don't, I don't need to know this one. I need to know the God who is over all that. One who humbly walks with God accepts what we cannot know or control, which is much of life. One who humbly walks with God admit, admits that we are in need of God's grace every day. And that's what you find woven through here. The, the Christian life is not difficult, it's impossible apart from his enabling grace. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't need to just try harder. That's not gonna cut it. It's not gonna do anything for you. Well, maybe, I shouldn't say it. Maybe you'll feel better some days, you'll feel worse other days, whatever, okay? You need Christ. You need complete forgiveness and transformation that only comes by accepting Christ as your Savior. That's why he came. It's a complete mockery to Christ that he would do what he did in the incarnation and we would live as if we don't need it. 
But if you have come to Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to cut it on your own. You're not. You get to walk with the God who is. And what you'll find, as Paul will tell us repeatedly in Colossians and 1 Corinthians, that Christ is our, our wisdom. Christ is our righteousness. All the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is bound up in him. So we walk with him. We cry out to him. We repent before him. And God does what only God can do. You say, but Finkbeiner, um, it, 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 it's, it's tough, right? You better believe it's tough. Shifting into neutral won't cut it. Because you've got everybody born. You know what I know about everybody in here? I mean, I know you personally. I know something about you. You're a sinner. You were born a rebel. That's what I know. And I know our propensity, and it's not easy. And God help me because I know my bent. But because I have the spirit within, because God's spirit is at work in my life, I can really be a different person by his grace. And thirdly, pursue God's will by his grace. Recognize it's tough, but by his grace, step out. And as he gives you the gifts, he gives, he's given us so many gifts. The gift of his word, the gift of church, the gift of other Christians, the gift of prayer, oh, so many gifts. As we utilize those gifts that he has given us, he does something in his life that no one else can. Let's try to end our time because I know I need to. It's getting late. I thought I might just read to you. Um, Luther said this, and I don't know, I probably have used this here before, but I really love this. Here is the life of a humble believer walking with God, knowing their own sinfulness, knowing they have a distance to travel, but knowing God is at work. Luther said this, this life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet clean in glory, but all is being purified. Oh, I do too. That's us. That can be you if you're willing to first of all, come to Christ if you don't know him. But if you know him, yielding to the spirit, so that can become your theme song too. Father, thank you for the openness and the struggle of the writer of Ecclesiastes. Life is raw for this person. And Father, we live life in the raw so often. So Father, we thank you for these wise words which point us back to you, 
Not that we would become like you, not that we would um, try to manipulate you, but that we would know the joy and the freedom and the wonder and the joy that can only come from submitting to you because of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So God, through your spirit, do your good work. In Christ's name I pray, amen. It's the bleak midwinter, frosty winds have moaned, the earth stands hard as iron, and water like a stone, and on the snow may fall down. Snow on snow on snow It's the bleak midwinter Yet not in my soul A stable place suffice for the Lord Almighty, Jesus Christ, and oh, His mother. the beloved with a mother's kiss angels and archangels may have gathered there Cherubim and seraphim rising in the air. Our God, heaven can't hold him, nor the earth sustain. Heaven and earth will bow down.
messed up and we can feel that uh, we can feel that bleak that bleak midwinter but we know we don't need to because we know in our souls we've been forgiven we've been healed we've been changed Uh, we know we're sinners we don't have all the answers Things don't make sense. Only you make sense. We want to come to you, Lord, and, and offer things up. We want to say, well, God, look at this that I did. Doesn't this make me good? Look at this thing I said today. Doesn't it make me good? I did all these things. Doesn't it make me, like Pastor Doug said, gooder? Doesn't it make me gooder? But it doesn't, Lord. We know that all you want us to bring is our hearts. So we offer our hearts to you, Lord. Please come and reign in our lives. Sit in the throne of our hearts, God. Especially this Christmas. Give us that reset, Lord. It is a, Christmas is a tradition. We love it because it's, of course, it's about you, but it's also the traditions, it's the things we do all the time. They feel cozy, they feel warm for many of us, Lord. But may, uh, may things change for us this Christmas. If we don't already, Lord, do this on a regular basis, God, we offer our hearts to you this Christmas time, Lord, whether we're Christians or not. God, we thank you that we can be together this morning. We thank you we can sing your praises. We can look to you as our hope, and we can leave this place and go into a world that needs to hear these things. You can try, you can try, you can try, but it's going to be all for nothing, Lord. There's a better way, and it's only through Jesus Christ and offering our hearts to him. God, we thank you for this morning. Be with us as we go into our weeks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a nice week.